Life and Times of Mysterious Dave Mather, Part 2, The Las Vegas, New Mexico Years. 1879, Las Vegas, New Mexico, and the Dodge City Gang. From 1878 to 1879, the Mathers rode on both sides of the law. In an article by Wayne T. Walker entitled, He Jumped from One Side of the Law to the Other with All the Agility of a Ping-Pong Ball in Motion, Walker writes, From Mogalala to El Paso to Dodge City, the phantom-like mysterious Dave Mather hunted buffalo, rustled cattle, played at the gaming tables, bore a wound in a knife fight, wore a law badge, and sometimes even been brought into court as a defendant. He crossed the fence between law and outlaw like a ping-pong ball. There were times when he was credited with being a proficient and courteous badge-toter. Other times, Mysterious Dave couldn't have cared less. He had served under renowned and respected lawmen, but he had also ridden the back trails with the worst of the lawless element. When Sheriff Bat Masterson of Ford County and Kansas and Colorado officers caught up with Dutch Henry Bourne, a notorious horse thief, in a pool hall at Trinidad, they found him chalking cue sticks with none other than mysterious Dave Mather. This was in January 1879. Wild West Podcast proudly presents Part 2 of The Life and Times of Mysterious Dave Mather, The Las Vegas, New Mexico Years. Dave Mather rode into Las Vegas, New Mexico on July 1879. The rider was a small man with fragile-looking shoulders, a thin frame, and a short stature. His hair was a mundane brown, and his only distinguishing attribute was his extended droopy mustache. He wore a hard, determined look of a dangerous gunslinger. Located on the edge of the eastern plains of New Mexico, at the foot of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains is Las Vegas, New Mexico. Las Vegas has been characterized as two towns, one place. The town that wouldn't gamble, and the wildest of the Wild West. Though not as well known as other Wild West towns, such as Dodge City, Deadwood, or Tombstone, Las Vegas is said to have been the worst of the worst of the Old West. Las Vegas was established by a Mexican land grant in 1835. Originally called Our Lady of Sorrows of the Great Meadows by settlers whose roots in the area went back to the early 1600s. In the beginning, the settlement doubled as a fort, designed to be battened down for attacks by the Apache Indians. Overnight, a new town was born on the east banks of the Galenus River, a mile east of the plaza. At first, a settlement of tents, sheds, and makeshift shelters was built. Still, many permanent buildings and a competing commercial district were established within a few short years. At that time, the town became so large that it rivaled Denver, Tucson, and El Paso. Las Vegas soon had modern utilities, such as waterworks and a telephone company. The tracks were laid east of the Galenus River, a mile from the plaza. When the Iron Horse finally arrived on July 4, 1879, Hundreds of citizens gathered around, including merchants, professionals, desperados, and dancehall girls. The six trains stopped there daily, opening up yet another era of prosperity. The railroad brought both legitimate businesses 
and introduced even more new elements into the town's already uncertain environment. Before long, outlaws, bunko artists, murderers, and thieves were becoming so common that the eastern part of the settlement had become utterly lawless. During these notorious days of Las Vegas history, the town was visited by many well-known outlaws. Such names included Doc Holliday, Big Nose Kate, Billy the Kid, Wyatt Earp, Rattlesnake Sam, and Cockeyed Frank. Mather came to Las Vegas to join John Joshua Webb, Dave Rudabaugh, and several others. It was not an unusual experience for those of that particular fraternity of gamblers, but nevertheless, they contrived to stick together, and trouble with one could lead to finding a whole gathering on your doorstep before you knew it. It was as if they perceived a coming end to the law of the gun, and resolved to make the most of that ginger while it prevailed. The Las Vegas group was collectively known as the Dodge City Gang, and led by Hyman G. Neal, better known as Hoodoo Brown. As early as 1872, Brown hunted buffalo and hauled timber from Russell, Kansas to Dodge City. He was described as a tall and thin, with light hair, a small mustache, and a dashing look. Most knew him as a small-time gambler and confidence man. Before long, he drifted on to Colorado, where he worked in the silver mines with a friend, then took off for Mexico, where they formed a ragtag opera company to enlighten the villagers. He was said to have stolen money from a dead man before moving to Houston, Texas. However, shortly after he arrived, he was arrested and jailed. When Hoodoo arrived in Las Vegas, New Mexico, he found it was developing a reputation as a lawless place, filled with outlaws and confidence men. His discontent with lawlessness led to his election as Justice of the Peace for East Las Vegas. He also served as coroner and mayor of the town. Hoodoo's first action as mayor was to recruit several former gunfighters from Kansas to form the police force. Unfortunately, the police force was as lawless as the criminals they were supposed to be policing. The police force included J.J. Webb as the town marshal, Mysterious Dave Mather, Joe Carson, Dutchie Schutterberger, and Dave Rudabaugh. Numerous news articles from the Dodge City papers exhibited Webb as a well-respected member of the Dodge City community. While there, he was deputized to ride in several posses. On January 29th, he deputized Webb and two other men named Kinch Riley and Dave Prairie Dog Morrow. The posse's job was to help Masterson track down six outlaws who had robbed the westbound train at Kinsley, Kansas, two days earlier. Two gang members, Edgar West and Dirty Dave Rudabaugh, were caught within days by the posse. During the arrest, when Rudabaugh went for his gun, Webb stopped him and forced him to surrender. The other four accomplices were arrested later. Rudabaugh then informed his cohorts and promised to go straight. Rudabaugh's accomplices were sent to prison, but Dirty Dave was soon released, drifting to New Mexico and returning to thievery again. Joe Carson was born in Tennessee in 1840, but by 1877 was in Texas before moving to the Colorado mining camps. In 1879, Carson moved to Las Vegas, New Mexico, working as a hotel clerk 
before getting involved in the notorious Dodge City Gang. The gang monopolized gambling and prostitution in Las Vegas while acquiring political power. John Joshua Webb moved to Las Vegas, New Mexico in June of 1879. Shortly after he arrived in Las Vegas, Webb's brother partnered with Doc Holliday and bought a saloon on Center Street, where Doc spent most of his time gambling. On July 19, 1879, Holliday and Webb were seated at a card table when a bully and former Army scout named Mike Gordon entered Holliday and Webb's saloon. He was in a powder keg of a mood. The one spark setting him off was finding his mistress there. Gordon tried to persuade her to accompany him to another dance hall on Railroad Street. She refused to go, and he flew into a drunken rage. Mike Gordon's disfigurement with a loss of his nose must have frightened the girls. The loss of the nose happened a few years back, when a gambler, while distributing money, seized Gordon with a grasp of iron by both ears and, with his teeth, wrought the disfiguration. Ever since then, he brooded and frequently drank himself into a stupor. Gordon was so outraged by the refusal that his shouting began to form as spit flew from his lips. In that moment of anger, he'd say anything, whatever was most hurtful, whatever would give him the most satisfying victory. Furious, Gordon stormed out of the saloon, shouting obscenities. He swore that he would kill someone or be killed himself before morning. After hearing Gordon's rage of threats, Doc Holliday decided to take the argument to the street. With a cocked pistol hidden behind his back, Doc politely invited Gordon to start shooting whenever he felt like it. Gordon accepted this invitation. Then every muzzle flash from Doc's gun became destined to rip Gordon from existence to silence his drunken rage. Every blast into the night air paced himself in the hands of a gunman who does not squander upon his target. It was as if that sound had become the killer, a lethal outcry from the meanest of lungs. The Gazette furnishes the rest of the story. Gordon was standing in the street to the right of the hall after some of his threats and drew a revolver and fired, the bullet passing through the pants leg of a Mexican and struck in the floor in line with the bartender who was standing at the rear of the bar. Other shots were fired immediately, but it is difficult to tell how or by whom. It is said that Gordon fired a second shot. Every person there says three shots were fired, while several maintain that five in all were fired. Gordon at once ceased firing and disappeared. An hour or two later, a Mr. Kennedy went into his tent some 30 or 40 yards away to go to bed and hearing groans investigated and found Gordon lying on the ground outside. The news soon spread and his woman arriving on the ground had him taken to her room east of the courthouse where he died at 6 o'clock Sunday morning. In the afternoon, the coroner held an inquest and the jury returned a verdict of excusable homicide. The paper reported that the bullet had struck Gordon in the right breast, just below the collarbone, and exited below the shoulder blade. The Gazette added that although a crowd witnessed the shooting, no one seemed to know who fired the fatal shot for fear of being called to testify. 
Gordon died the next day. The Las Cruces 34 reported the shootout by stating the following. Mike Gordon got drunk in a dance hall in Vegas and began a bluff by drawing a pair of sixes and firing promiscuously around the room. Some unknown person called his hand, and Gordon was froze out. He was buried at the expense of the county the next day. Vegas is a bad town to bluff. Masterson claimed that the day after Gordon was killed, a Mexican gambler who had been a friend of Gordon swore out a complaint against all the saloons and gambling houses in town. Among others, Doc was indicted. Afterward, Doc, Jim Pearson, and two of their friends met the Mexican in front of a saloon. A fight was, of course, the inevitable result. During the row, the Mexican was killed and Doc had to leave Las Vegas. Supposedly, Doc headed back to Dodge City. However, he arrived only to find Wyatt Earp had gone to a new silver strike in Tombstone, Arizona. Las Vegas citizens first heard about Mather on August 18, 1879, when he was charged with aiding in a nearby stagecoach robbery. The Barlow and Sanderson stagecoach, driven by Jack Davis, was robbed by three men near the village of Tecalote. There were three passengers on board, one being William F.M. Annie, the former acting governor of New Mexico. Mather and several other shady characters were arrested with the notorious outlaw Dutch Henry Bourne. Later that same year, in October, Mysterious Dave was arrested and hauled into the Las Vegas court for robbing a train with Dave Rudabaugh. The news of the train robbery was telegraphed to J.M. Thatcher, an agent of the Adams Express Company at Dodge City, during the early morning hours of October 15th. Rumors began sweeping Las Vegas that three members of the Dodge City gang were involved in the recent stage and train holdups. Accused were Dave Rudabaugh, Joseph Martin, and mysterious Dave Mather. When the prosecution failed to appear, he was released on Monday, November 3rd, 1879. According to the Gazette, David Rudabaugh and Joseph Martin were accused of stage robbing some weeks ago and were brought in and arraigned. Played not guilty and in the absence of any prosecution, discharged. The prosecution failed to appear and the evidence was of such doubtful character that it was uncertain as whether a case could have been made against them or not. Dave Mather, accused of being accessory to the train robbery of August 14th, was arraigned, pled not guilty. The prosecution having failed to appear, the prisoner was released and his bonds canceled. This seems to have been a case of malice, as the prosecution had no evidence, whatever, to sustain his charge. These two cases were being held under warrants sworn out by one Texas Frank and Frank P. Whitfield. Mather's acquittal led to the city council's satisfaction. He was then appointed constable. Later that same year, in October, he was immediately secured an appointment as a lawman, a Las Vegas deputy for town marshal Joe Carson. As a policeman, he became involved in his first shooting scrape. On Thursday, November 20th, 1879, Mather arrested a group of drunken soldiers for disorderly conduct. One soldier tried to escape. Running down the street, he repeatedly fired his gun. Finally, Mather, a crack shot, slowed the soldier down by sending a spray of bullets down the street at him, 
one of which hit the soldier's thumb. The wound subdued the soldier, and he was taken to jail. The November 22, 1879 issue of the Las Vegas Gazette contained an item about Constable Mather, now decorum's upholder, arresting several soldiers for creating a disturbance. The Las Vegas Gazette mildly rebuked Mather for the incautious way he sent bullets flying down the town street and accused him of taking too aggressive an action. Mather defended his action, claiming the soldier shot first, and just like that, the matter was closed. By January 1880, Las Vegas was firmly in control of the Dodge City Gang. On January 22, 1880, the Las Vegas shootout at the Variety Hall Saloon would launch Dave Mather into Old West fame. On January 22, 1880, four rough-housing cowboys by the name of T.J. House, James West, John Dorsey, and William Randall were parading about Santa Fe, New Mexico. They sneered, laughed, and looked for trouble by intimidating the citizens. They were noted as the Henry Gang, a collection of hoodlums who had come to town to stir up trouble. They had been in town for several days and were blind with booze when they walked into the Close and Patterson Saloon late on January 22nd. Word soon reached Marshal Joe Carson, who, along with Deputy Mysterious Dave Mather, that the men were brandishing their firearms. Despite being previously warned by Marshal Joe Carson about wearing their shooting irons in public, the gang stumbled into the saloon with their guns in plain sight. When Constable Dave Mather and Marshal Carson arrived at the saloon, they prepared themselves for the unexpected. Mather knew it to be a disturbance complaint, but the members of the gang inside the saloon were both dangerous and drunk. Mathers and Carson cautiously approached the saloon entrance and stopped outside the doorway. Carson looked over into Mather's steel eyes to see Mather unbuttoning his duster, pulling it back over the right side of his holster. A brown pistol butt in clear sight was now obtainable to a fast draw. Mather was now prepared to enter the saloon. Carson, being marshal, approached the Henry gang first and told them they were breaking a town ordinance. Carson told the gang that the guns had to be deposited behind the bar. He told them firmly that they could claim them on their way out. Those instructions did not please the Henry gang, and the lead started flying. The first hit was Joe Carson. A bullet broke his arm. He put his gun in his left hand, but a second shot broke his left arm. He stood there defenseless as the gang pumped eight bullets into his body. Then, without a word, he walked to the door and fell dead. William, Big Randall, drunk and trying to prove he was a ring-tailed snorter, swung around with a pistol in his hand and took a shot at Mather. The bullet tore harmlessly through Mather's duster, penetrating and splintering the doorframe above his head. Randall then looked at the tall officer over, taking in the dark mustache and arched eyebrows, finally staring into the cold gray eyes. Mather returned the fire, mortally wounding Randall, shot Jim West in his right lung and liver, and put two bullets in Tom Henry's leg. During the fight, the lights were shot out. When the smoke cleared and the lights relit, a scene of carnage greeted the visitors. 
Joe Carson's body blocked the doorway. Randall's body lay near the stove, and Jim West, his guns unfired, lay dying. Despite his wounds, Tom Henry and his partner John Dorsey escaped, making their way to the Llewellyn and Olds Corral. Once there, they saddled up and hightailed it out of town. Mather had no compassion for the wounded West. Mather ordered West to be taken directly to jail rather than to the hospital. Once in jail, Mather sent for the doctor, who determined that West had no hope for survival. West lay in jail, slowly dying. Mather was viewed as a hero by the town for standing up to the Henry gang, killing one man and seriously wounding another in a darkened saloon gunfight. January 25, 1880, a crew of railroad graders came to town with the railroad telegraph operator Joe Costello. Joe Costello had arrived in Las Vegas the previous day. Joe was a sensible and strove to keep his fellow workers out of trouble. But several days of drinking had dulled his senses. A little after 10 p.m., two of his workers drunkenly began to quarrel. Two of Joe's men got into a fistfight. In his attempt to separate them, Joe drew his revolver and waved it at the gathering crowd. At this point, Constable Mather arrived and ordered the railroad men to holster their weapons. Costello, who was well lit with liquor, leveled his cocked six-gun at Mather and threatened to shoot him if he took another step. Mather whipped out his own revolver and, without hesitation, shot Costello. The slug penetrated Costello's left side, tore through his lung and stomach, and ranged down into his liver. He was carried to Hoodoo Brown's office, and a doctor was summoned, but he died at 6 o'clock the following morning. The coroner's jury found that the deceased came to his death by a pistol fired from the hands of D.H. Mather, constable, in the discharge of his duty as an officer, and said that the shooting was justifiable and in self-protection. Soon after Carson's death, mysterious Dave Mather would be named Marshal and J.J. Webb Policeman. On February 22nd, Mather received a tip that the killers of Carson were hiding in Mora. So he mounted a posse with J.J. Webb, Dutchy Goodlett, Dave Rudabaugh, Lee Smith, Harry Coombs, and Muldoon. The posse surrounded the gunman's hideout. After much discussion, Henry and Dorsey surrendered with the assurance that they would receive guaranteed protection from vigilante action. They were willing to take their chances with the legal system. The two men were sent to jail where they joined fellow gang member West, who was still in the process of dying. The Las Vegas Optic printed a few words on the capture of the men, announcing that they would be jerked to Jesus before the sun rises again. At about 2.30 a.m. the day after the men's imprisonment, a masked lynch mob took the prisoners from the jail. It was reported but never proven that Mather was the leader. The vigilantes dragged the two uninjured youths out of jail. West, who could not walk, was put on a litter. The three were taken to a windmill in the plaza and carried up to a platform that was built across the lower level of the tower. West begged for mercy. The mercy he got was to be hung first. They slipped the noose over his head and pulled. He was jerked from the litter into the air. They had not tied his hands, and he managed to get them under the rope and began crying for his mother as he swung in the night air. Rifle fire broke out from across the street. It was Joe Carson's widow. 
The shooting became general and the three cowboys were blasted repeatedly. Mrs. Carson opened fire on the remaining men, ending their lives before they could be strung up. None of them reached their 21st birthday. Coroner Hoodoo Brown's verdict was they had met their just fates at the hands of parties unknown. Two more killings would occur before the Dodge City gang would head for safer climates. Mather's first action as marshal came in response to an argument over breakfast. Mather was helping the St. Nicholas Hotel set up tables when an ill-tempered man, James Moorhead, ordered eggs. Mr. Moorhead, representing the wholesale liquor establishment of Derby and Day of St. Louis, had been for several days stopping at the hotel late for breakfast. James Allen, the waiter, said it was too late for the cook to prepare them. The argument escalated into a pushing and shoving match. Finally, they parted and Moorhead headed for the office to complain while Allen went to the dining room to get his pistol. When Moorhead came out of the office, Allen pointed the gun at Moorhead and told him to go down on his knees and apologize. After they struggled and Allen's gun went off, fatally wounding Moorhead, having witnessed the entire incident, Mather arrested Allen. Neither man had noticed the slight man working. Mather, after the incident, remarked that it was a rough transition for one his age. The Las Vegas Gazette reported. Allen was arrested by an officer, being found in the dining room, quietly preparing the table for dinner. James Allen shot Mr. Moorhead in the left side while he attempted to rescue a pistol from the angry waiter. James Allen was about 20 years old and employed at the hotel, where the present management took possession. His stepfather and mother reside in Lawrence, Kansas. Allen was once employed as a waiter in Watson's Dining Hall on Railroad Street. Mr. Moorhead lies in critical condition. It is feared he will die tonight. His room has been visited by many prominent citizens who have had business dealings with him for several years. On March 2, 1880, Hyman Neal learned that a freighter named Mike Kelleher was carrying about $1,900 on his person. The excitement in town over the breakfast killing gave J.J. Webb and Dutchie Goodlett the cover they needed to plot and conduct the robbery of newcomer Michael Keller. They enlisted the assistance of a man called Boyle. Boyle requested Kelleher to drink with him at the Goodlett and Robinson Saloon. After a few drinks, Boyle picked a fight with Kelleher, and Webb and Goodlett surged in and shot Kelleher for disturbing the peace. It just so transpired that when Webb caught the falling Kelleher, his wallet fell into Webb's hands. The Ford County Globe of March 9, 1880, reprinted the report from Las Vegas Daily Optic. About 4 o'clock this morning, Michael Kelleher, in company with William Brickley and another man, a member of the Dodge City Gang, entered Goodlett and Roberts' saloon and called for drinks. Michael Kelleher appeared to be the party's leader, and in violation of the law had a pistol on his person. This was noticed by the officers, who came through a rear door, and they requested that Kelleher lay aside his revolver. But he refused to do so, remarking, I won't be disarmed. Everything goes immediately placing his hand on his pistol, no doubt intending to shoot. But Officer Webb was too quick for him. The man was shot before he had time to use his weapon. He was shot three times, once in each breast and once in the head. 
Kelleher had $1,900 on his person when killed. Mather was required to arrest his law enforcement officer's companions for murder. Arresting friends was more than a man like Mather could endure. A few weeks later, Mysterious Dave resigned as constable and drifted to Dodge City. He joined Charlie Bassett and two other men on a trip to the Gunnison County of western Colorado. The quartet spent some time prospecting in the mountains for the elusive golden riches so many others had found in the Rockies. Finally, they gave up their search and went their separate ways. After Mather resigned, J.J. Webb, an associate of the Dodge City Gang, became subject to his collaboration in the onslaught of the many crimes in the town. The people were up in arms over the killings, thefts, and general rowdiness of their fair city. By March 1880, public sentiment had turned against the Dodge City Gang. They broke up to head their separate ways. Townspeople soon tired of the escapades of the lawless people of their city and took matters into their own hands. The Las Vegas Optic on April 8, 1880, posted this notice. To murderers, confidence men, thieves. The citizens of Las Vegas have tired of robbery, murder, and other crimes that have made this town a byword in every civilized community. They have resolved to put a stop to crime if, and attaining that end, they have to forget the law and resort to speedier justice than it will afford. All such characters are, therefore, hereby notified that they must either leave this town or conform themselves to the requirements of the law, or they will be summarily dealt with. The flow of blood must and shall be stopped in this community, and the good citizens of both the old and new towns have determined to stop it, if they have to hang by the strong arm of force every violator of the law in this country. Vigilantes Soon after this notice, most outlaws headed for new locations with less resistance. However, the lawlessness wasn't entirely done. In 1881, after Billy the Kid was killed at Fort Sumner, New Mexico, his index finger was sent in a jar to the Las Vegas newspaper. The Las Vegas Optic reported about the incident. It, his finger, is well-preserved in alcohol and has been viewed many times in our office today. If the rush continues, we shall purchase a small tent and open a sideshow to which complimentary tickets will be issued to our personal friends. For the next two years, the name of mysterious Dave Mather popped up everywhere in the West, including a letter from a Texan to Governor Glick of Kansas, inquiring as to whether there was a reward for a mysterious Dave, desperado and gambler. The Texan had understood that mysterious Dave was wanted in Kansas for murder. Mather wandered through various towns, often using the alias Dave Matthews, spending the next few years involved in various nefarious schemes. Dave spent time gambling in Colorado, was accused of counterfeiting in Texas, and dabbled in law enforcement in El Paso. From El Paso, he headed for Dallas in December, where Dave spent his relaxation time with Georgia Morgan. Morgan was the black proprietress of the Long Branch, a famous sporting house. Mather did some pimping, or blacksmithing as it was called for her, but the relationship abruptly concluded when he tried to flee town with Morgan's gold ring and chain. If Dave thought he had heard the last of the fallen flower he had deserted, he soon learned better. 
Miss Morgan, armed with a revolver and butcher knife, was searching the acre to achieve her revenge in the form of bodily harm. She pursued him and provoked a public uproar when she confronted him with a butcher knife. Fort Worth officers stopped her before she found him. As a result, Morgan was arrested and fined $8.25. Mather seized the opportunity of Morgan's arrest to make his getaway, but was pulled off the train by the law and returned to Dallas. The charge was of a theft that had occurred in Dallas. So naturally, the Cowtown officers were glad to put the unhappy couple on a train under close guard for the trip back to Dallas to receive whatever justice that city might administer. Morgan decided enough was enough and never brought charges. So again, Mather was a free man. After the incident with Morgan, Mather headed to Dodge City. That's it for now. Remember to check out our Wild West podcast shows on iTunes or wildwestpodcast.buzzsprout.com. You can also catch us on Facebook at facebook.com slash wildwestpodcast or on our YouTube channel at Wild West Podcast, Mike King YouTube. So make sure you subscribe to our shows listed at the end of the descriptive text of this podcast to receive notifications on all new episodes. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you have any comments or would like to add to our series, you can write us at wildwestpodcast at gmail.com. We will share your thoughts as they apply to future episodes. Join us on February 18th when Wild West Podcast will interview Keith Wondra, the curator of Boot Hill Museum, on the topic of saloons and the beautiful bibulous battle on the frontier, the history of Dodge City saloons from 1872 to 1886.